You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everyone to The 80-20 Show. I'm your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Maddie Steinkamp from Mango Skies. Now, Maddie and I go way, way back. I've known Maddie since I started 8020 Records back in 2008, and at the time he was running a record label called Sundog Records, and it was an amazing, amazing label. He was one of the few people in town that I knew had a record label and somebody that I very much respected. And over the years, we started off as competitors and ended up being great, great friends. He's gone on to doing film. He's directed a number of music videos for our artists. And I'm going to just let you hear the interview. He has an amazing journey to tell everything from his music upbringing to being homeless and becoming a well-accomplished filmmaker, creating so many wonderful pieces of art. One of my favorite documentaries is called Play the Documentary. So please check it out. And without further ado, I give you Maddie Steinkamp. Hey, Maddie, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. You know, it's funny. Like I, I was thinking earlier about us and we've known each other almost to the beginning of 8020 Records when we started back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So we've known each other now for at least 10 years, I think. I think so. I, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like we met, you know, either just before 8020 Records started or as it was happening. Um, I feel like we were at the same shows. I feel like we were, you know, there was there was a lot of things happening in Phoenix at that time with KWSS and Beef Vegan that was bringing a lot of people together in the music industry, a lot of venues like Sailin and and Rogue Bar that was accessible to a lot of us, you know? And I think that, you know, we had a lot of really great bands coming out of the, out of the city all at the same time that we all wanted to try and help out. So that was at least 10 years ago. I, I mean, it could have even been earlier than that. I mean, I look back at when I was volunteering for KWSS was starting in 2008 or 2009. And was so, that the same time that you started uh, Sundog Media was around that time when you started working with uh, KWSS? So uh, Sundog Media, yes, but Sundog Records came, uh, started in 2007. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Sundog Records started in 2007 uh, with The Wiley One and A Life of Science. Oh, very cool. And, um, and actually, my, <laughs> my failed uh, solo music career. <laughs> wait, you had a solo uh, music career? Well, a little bit, yeah. yeah. So wait, wait, I have to ask I more. because I did. It definitely failed. Okay, so we have to talk more about this. So like, what kind of music was it? I was an, I was an acoustic uh, singer-songwriter. It, I had a band with uh, James Keenan from A Life of Science back in college that was called Our Day Off. And we played mostly like college bar music it was like oar time period we were up in flagstaff so it was a lot of like um you know jimmy buffett type you know good good go you know fun songs uh, we would do cover we would do like uh, sublime covers but like our music kind of was a folk indie version of these conglomerate of music that we all listened to um, my i was pretty much in the singer songwriter acoustic category 
and uh, it was fun. You know, I, 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 I toured the West Coast twice. I played at, I had a, a show booked at the Roxy that uh, didn't really go the way it was supposed to. Uh, that is very typical to anybody that's like, I've made it, I'm playing at the Roxy, you know, in LA. And um, I didn't actually play at the Roxy that night but I played it on the rocks and the stage above. You played on the um, stage above. Yeah. I've seen that happen before. Yeah. That's happened to me too. Even though, even though the guy that was like, that booked me really, really tried like to make up for his mistake. It, it really felt like a failure. And uh, if I remember, I don't think I played a live show. I think that was my last solo acoustic show. After that, I, I only played as like a backup player in a band or so what made you then, because were you, were you a musician all your life? Uh, How did you get started yeah. in music? Yeah, so my parents were both uh, very uh, professional singers. Like um, my dad sang acapella music and barbershop music. My mom was a very big uh, choir director and choral, like uh, ensemble director. They sang for presidents and the queen and toured around the world and my dad, you know, directed the Tokyo, you know, symphony at one point and the Phoenix symphony wow. at one point. I grew up singing in that world. I grew up as an acapella singer. I sang in an acapella quartet, in a barbershop quartet from the age of 12 to 18. We, we did, uh, it was called Alliance. We had a really great, great thing going for us and, until we all kind of like grew up. Our bass, Mark, wanted to get married and have kids. Uh, Dusty wanted to go to college. Um, I was still in high school. And, you know, it was one of these things that we were, we were so good. It was kind of like a, I didn't, I, I didn't know how to end it kind of thing. And, it, and, and, and we, we did some really great shows. Like we played Pond in Anaheim, you know, the Disney, the, uh, the Disney owns. We sang at the Bob Hoke and Mickey uh, Mickey Rooney Celebrity Golf Tournament in, in California. There was just some like really big things that we did. We we sang for like forty thousand people at one point in Salt Lake City. That's incredible. It, it really it was a it's a totally different dynamic though. Like this was like a choral you know setting. This isn't like your pop music setting or a music venue. So I never really followed that. I really kind of burnt out of that when I got into college and kind of started going more towards I want to pick up an instrument. I played piano my whole life. Um, I've been a singer my whole life. We had gotten the opportunity to sing, you know, with Disney on, uh, with some things and sing like the Coca-Cola commercial uh, as, a, as an acapella thing. And it gave me a lot of experience of like what that, you know, major step could be. In the middle of all that, we we had some like real confrontations with agents and like people that... Um, we were supposed to go on this big Disney cruise and it fell through, but like we kind of like paid this agent to go get us all these things. There was uh, this one agent that we, I think we paid, I don't know, like a couple thousand dollars to get our photos and do this like video package for us to be like our EPK, never got it. And it was just like all these things that kind of really like got under my skin being a kid. And I'd see this with my father also, my father would do this, big huge performance and did not get paid and i was like what <laughs> like like you just they just flew you out to new york and you played it you, you directed a, a chorus at madison square garden and no one paid you a dime it was voluntary and he was like well you know that's just you know how the thing works and i'm like i don't think that's how it works i think that you know there's more to it and i think that he was doing it as 
kind of a hobby in some cases, in some cases was professional because they own, my parents owned their own company. They had their own startup, they're entrepreneurs. And they, you know, they weren't, I wouldn't, they weren't very well off, you know, when I was a kid, I think, you know, they, they became successful later in life when I was like a teenager because they had owned their business for so long. But I remember starting off, you know, in a, in a three bedroom, you know, house with five people and then moving into a two bedroom apartment, you know, with five people and, and understanding that, that that time was to save money so that they could buy this bigger house kind of thing. And I, you know, they, during that time, I think that my dad was also in a similar situation where I am now, where he's, you know, he, he wanted to do music professionally his whole life and he had all these amazing things, but it didn't really, unless he was on the road all the time or unless he was gone all the time, he couldn't really provide for his family and that kind of thing. So he, you know, they definitely made decisions to, to have their company so that they could do their music as more of a hobby later. And when that was happening, it really, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot that, you know, what, what is the difference between a hobby and a profession in the music industry? And so when I got into college, I really kind of, I really, I started to learn what that is, what the music industry is. Um, I went to school up at NEU and uh, the uh, College of Communication. And um, I also was trying to uh, get into their, their theater program and their music program up there that I, I never followed through with that. I ended up doing more film classes than I did the actual singing or music classes. And somehow I ended up being a bartender in college and for seven years was a bartender at one of the most popular bars, Maloney's. Wow, you were seven years, you were a bartender up there. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it, it changed my life. Like I, you know, you're, you're in the spotlight, you know, all the time you have to make every drink perfectly and it's got to be faster than anybody else. Cause it's the busiest bar and, and you, and you can't mess up. Like the money has to be on every single time. And it was very exciting. And during that time I met a lot of the people that I worked with at the Lodi's were also musicians and we would go to Charlie's uh, at the hotel Weatherford and we played open mic and, and rumors definitely got around like, Oh, Maddie can sing, you know, kind of thing. And I grew up singing. I, 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 at that point in, in college, I hadn't done much with my singing. I was more of a, you know, person just trying to network and communicate and be happy. And, you know, I was very a peaceful. I was just a totally different person in college. I was pretty much a party animal um, that was like, if you if you were anybody that was walking around and said, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, let's go. Uh, that was me in college. And it helped, it helped me make the songs that I wanted to make, you know, during that time that then you know, our day off lasted for two or three years up there. You know, we were definitely playing at all the bigger venues up there and opening for bands and whatnot. But, you know, it was a college thing. It was, you know, the second I left Flagstaff to move down to Phoenix to open up one of Maloney's bars down here in Scottsdale, I kind of like started my solo trip. And to be fair, that's probably about the site, the time that I thought I wanted to be my own representative. I wanted to, I wanted to book myself. I wanted to be in control of this thing that I was doing. So I, I kind of, I didn't look for a manager. I didn't look for a booker. I didn't look for a label. I bought my own gear. I put on my own show. I would have like my own showcase at like coffee shops and, and, and bars and whatnot. That would be me and other musicians. Jay Allen 
from so many different places. I, I know him from Dalcoa, but he has, he has uh, uh, so many different groups now. He, he, he was having a lot of different uh, showcase type things. And I, I would go and play uh, on his showcases in North Phoenix and in North Scottsdale. And uh, he was probably the first person in the music industry I met. I met Brad Perry also. Brad Perry was at one of my shows and had me come and play on his like morning show or something. And then right after that, uh, the D-backs owner had me and my friend come and play at a D-backs game. And it was just like one, you know, thing after another that there was a point that I even had a meeting with my like family and friends of like, okay, so what, how do I move forward? Do I try to get an agent? You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. It, it, it started, I mean, I, was, I played at Martini Ranch. I played at um, Club Congress down in Tucson. All solo acoustic. I played at the Roxy in LA. I played it at Murphy's Pub in, in Huntington Beach. And there was these, it was, but again, I was mostly playing what you see now as the guy that's playing the acoustic, you know, thing at the bar like that back then it wasn't popular like the busker that was really good was still on the street you know like in 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 the in the early in the 2000s you know the busker the the people the economy wasn't booming enough to have every single pub and every single bar have a solo acoustic player at happy hour like i could go around and be one of maybe 10 people sean johnson was uh was very much like very like the guy that that played at all the awesome places and everybody loved going to see sean johnson this was you know mid mid 2000s um because there wasn't a lot of people doing that um and that really like got me into the system of the music industry in arizona um meeting these people uh, meeting the venue owners meeting brandon kleinline and devin um, at the original last exit, uh, they threw my very first Sundog Records showcase night. Oh, really? For me, like they didn't charge me for it. Like they said, "Hey, come in. I like what you're trying to do." Because uh, I was trying to do these showcases and help use that money to help pay for the band's things, like not like help manage them, but give the control to the fans or whatever. Um, so we do like an album an album recording showcase. So it'd be like three or four bands that were trying to raise money for an album recording. We'd all have that thing and it raise like a thousand bucks and each band would get, you know, 250 bucks, 300 bucks. And that's like a day of recording at Bob Hope's studio. Yep. That, that goes a long way. And, and, and back then 300 bucks was a lot of money in the music industry in Phoenix. Like the very first two years I started doing music videos, I was charging 300 bucks a music video. You know, and that was like, you could really get that going in the 2000s. There wasn't a lot of cameras out. The 5D hadn't been made yet. People were still like GoPro was not popular yet. It was still like out of, out of the reach. The cameras were still out of the reach. I luckily had like a Vixia camera that Sammy bought uh, for a tour because we got, we got them on the X Games one year. And I could make music videos with this for the Wiley one or like science or, or any of our friends uh, like Fayuka uh, that were around then that didn't, we didn't have these tools, you know, around kind of thing. Um, That's, that's how I got into record label. 
um, the, the, I, I got out, I, my, my solo career was like, uh, I'm not, I'd have to spend the next 20 years touring around by myself to figure myself out that way. And I just didn't, I really was driven by me being taken advantage of on my tour of people just flat out lying to me on bookings, sponsors pulling their funding, you know, a week into the tour. You know, I, I had this iced tea company that was going to give me $300 as long as I had their ice, as long as I had a, a can of their iced tea with me on stage. And they didn't give me any money, but they gave me the iced tea. The iced tea sucked, <laughs> you know, and it was like super sweet. And I like hated it, I hated it. They never gave me the money. Um, those kinds of things fueled me to want to help others that were better than me. I saw other musicians wanting to go out there and be, you know, in a band and tour. And I was like, dude, you're going to get, you're going to, someone's going to steal that shit from you, man. Like someone's going to take advantage of you. Let me help you out. Give me, I'm going to give you some advice that just, you know, collaboration of communication turned into Sundog Records, turned into me signing a, 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 a you know, a 50, 50 deal with, you know, a life of science and the Wiley one where, you know, we both put money into it. We both, you know, split the shares equally. I put, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars into both those bands um, over the period of like four or five years. And then we, we, we started making money. You know, we, we, we did some, some, some real smart things of just like, Let's sell this album and then, you know, just, just keep that money and not go back in the studio for a year. And, and let's, you know, try and license this music. Okay, well, we sold the whole album for a thousand bucks to this, you know, uh, station that they can use. Their music. And oh, wow, they cut us another check for $300 three months later uh, from licensing it on, you know, several TV shows. With Sammy, it, we, you know, we really had a lot of opportunities with licensing. When we got him on the X Games the first year, everybody fell in love with all of us and we just had a whole crew. We, we had the, just like the coolest crew out there. We had, you know, identity crisis was with us. Uh, MC criterion was with us um, along with Sammy's whole band. And they all made up then a bigger band of Sammy's when they were at the X games, we were going around, you know, we were talking like little John in, in like the, the bar and he's like pitching us his clothing line. Um, and we're the upcoming, you know, group at the X Games kind of thing. That led to, uh, we wrote a song with, with Disney for the environmentality thing. Uh, Sammy wrote two songs, I think, for Disney. All just from just going to that one event. And that turned into a, kind of like a lifetime of like friendship. I mean, I, I still talk to my friends that, that work at the X Games that first year. Oh, wow. And that... That again, then allowed us to go out and try to sign other bands and work with other bands. So I, I wanted to ask you, Maddie, because th- one of the things that you mentioned, which is one of the main reasons why I started A20 Records, was we saw so much, uh, whether it's firsthand experience or just reading through articles and from other experiences with musicians about uh, you know, people taking advantage, especially representation taking advantage of artists. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I started A20 Records with my business partner was because we wanted to do something different. But in especially in the beginning, you know, how how were you able to convince people to trust you? 
you know, especially because, you know, at the, especially during that time, it's became more yeah, and more nobody. known that people were taking advantage of artists. So how were you able to convince people to represent artists specifically to represent them on Sundog Records? I, I think specifically with Sammy and uh, a life of science, uh, uh, Jimmy and Scott, I was already doing things that they wanted to do with their groups. When I played at the deep at the at Chase Stadium, they they saw that because they were my friends, and they're like, "Oh, I want that too. Can you help me?" There was already a validation in my part. I already had significant. Uh, recognition for helping them get shows also so one of the things that happened was back in college i being the bartender at maloney's i also kind of controlled what was being played at several of the venues and so people would ask me for playlists and all this kind of stuff i would put sammy's songs on every single playlist and that was just when i was just a fan of his in college he put out this album called number seven kid um, it was kind of this nice underground, you know, album that nobody knew about all around the same time that Jack Johnson and Dave Matthews and all these people are becoming popular. I was like, we got our own guy right here. You know, that sounds like G love, you know, right here in Flagstaff and everybody fell in love with his music in Flagstaff. Um, he became a hometown hero there when he was up in college after college, he came down to Phoenix and we met up at one of my shows. I invited him out to one of my shows. I was like, hey, you know, come play some songs. Like, you know, I'm going to be at this, like, uh, I think it was like Blue Agave in North Scottsdale, the theater. I was playing like a, a happy hour show. And I remember him and Alyssa came out to the show. And I was like, what are you up to now? He's like, oh, I want to do some stuff with my music. I want to, you know, I want to tour. I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm thinking about starting a label. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of doing my own, you know, promotion. I'd like to, you know, help others. And uh, it was just one of these things I think that was, there was already a, a, an understanding, specifically with the first two groups. We had already been like, especially with the life of science, James was my bass player in college. Right. I also kind of taught him how to sing in the way that he did for a life of science that is one of the most beautiful voices now in, in anything I've ever worked on. You know, the Life of Science albums was a full-on masterpiece that Jimmy and Scott created that I think, you know, like they were looking for someone to manage it and like begging, <laughs> you know, like anybody, anybody that, 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 that'll that help us, you know, kind of thing. It was just lucky that I was there and someone wasn't there to take advantage of that. Um, because we, you know, we, we definitely sculpt, sculpted that project for five or six years to be you know, a full on, you know, trilogy of albums that was way before its time, a comic book series and a novel with, with, with one of our friends. Um, we, there was at one point, Travis Alexander had, had Mark Wahlberg reading our script for our, in our treatment for our film. Really? I mean, yeah. Wow. Um, we, we were, we were in the big Apple con in New York city and our lead guitarist in the life of science was we were trying to get him to hook up with one of the girls from twilight and it happened no way okay <laughs> and then and then the rest of the entire time at at, at big apple con him and that superstar twilight girl were walking around arm in arm 
on every camera, whatever. We literally stopped our tour so Travis and Anthony Gabuzzi could fly back to LA to hang out with this girl for a couple of weeks or whatever, just for the pure fact that maybe their agent would pick up our group or pick up our story. That is brilliant. That's it was so crazy. Brilliant. That's insane. Also, our drummer at the time went crazy and we had to send him home. So we didn't have a drummer also. <laughs> wow. This sounds like a very like typical tour story, even though how wild oh, man. it is. The Life of Science uh, full nationwide Comic-Con tour was a moment that I'll never forget in my life. My 30th birthday was spent in New York with, with my greatest friends, you know, and, and my family. Uh, you know, Jimmy Keenan, Scott Passimony, Travis Alexander, Anthony Gabuzzi are probably the greatest people to tour with. Like they are, there's no doubt about it. The whole, the, got better the whole way until New York. We play our best show in Buffalo. And then we find out that our, our drummer has been stealing from us. Really? And we had like, we just had, literally we had to like drive him to the airport and, and, and the, and JFK and said, we bought you a ticket. You're going home. Wow. So what did, so what did you guys do after afterwards for without a drummer? What did you guys do? Oh, that, that's when also like, so this was the thing. So we lose the drummer and then the Comic-Con happens. And then this thing happens with Anthony and this like superstar. So we're like, oh, this is fate. <laughs> wow. So you just canceled all the rest back. of the shows and we just canceled the rest of the shows, drove back. We canceled Chicago. We canceled St. Louis. We canceled Philly. We drive back. We don't hear from Anthony for like a month. <laughs> I think I'll Jimmy. Say. I think I think we even sent Jimmy, our lead singer, out to LA to just be a part of the crew for like. <laughs> we wow. tried, like, like we we thought, like, because it was at a, it was such at a moment when also, we were talking to MTV about having our comic book animated comic book series as teasers, as like little vignettes in their in their thing, like so my old roommate from college became like the VP of like uh, programming for MTV Viacom during this like exact same time or something. And he was like, well, your music isn't really going to be on MTV, but the comic book animated comic book thing could be really cool. If it's like after, like sometimes we do these like animated things after uh, a, an episode of something goes on and it's like that in between whatever is next. It's, he's like, if you can make these for me, I'll put them on. And so we started making them. And that is the whole way that I became a filmmaker because the guys that we paid like to stop doing what we needed and I had to start making them. And so Jimmy and I basically had to teach ourselves how to make music videos and animated things. That's did you always have a, a passion for film or was that just no. more of a necessity? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have uh, we have an older cousin that's like one of the best filmmakers, uh, cinematographers in the world. His name's Kevin McKnight. Growing up, seeing his work was probably one of the most inspiring things as a kid. You know, like you have an older cousin that's in Hollywood. You know, he did he 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 filmed Hildago. He was the uh, cinematographer for so many different things. Oh, oh recently he did he. Uh, Pretty much everything you'd ever seen, the style and everything, for um, oh, uh, Shameless. He's the he's the DP for Shameless. Uh, he did the most recent uh, series, the uh, uh, Harriet Tubman uh, Underground. 
series. I think it's either Outlander or Outlier or Outsider. I forget the uh, Stephen King series that's on HBO right now. Mm-hmm. My yes. cousin did that one. So I, I mean, I grew up like, wow, you know, my cousin's so amazing. Combined with being in a stage performance kid background, you know, I kind of always saw like the big show in my head. I don't know that I it ever clicked. I thought I was going to be a, a music mogul CEO or something like that out of college. I, I didn't see film intertwining with it at all. I didn't, I didn't, uh, other than licensing. I, I lived in LA for about five months to try to uh, just pitch licensing to film. Even then I didn't, and I, I, I was a production assistant on several MTV pilots during that time and never thought that I was going to go into film. Interesting. So what made you then decide to transition then from essentially Song Dog Records into Song Dog Media? What made you decide to switch to being more of the focus on film instead of music? So uh, Sundog Media was birthed because uh, A Life of Science needed to take a break to write the second and third album. And during that time, we wanted to increase our income for the label. And so Jimmy and I created Sundog Media, Media where I would do the, the video and the sales and uh, the management of it. He would do the graphic design. So we were selling websites. We were selling logo design. Um, we worked with bands and, and gave bands deals like Westcott Avenue, like Fayuka, like what Laura says, just as like, uh, you know, website stuff. Uh, Jimmy had did the, the what Laura says, uh, Bloom Cheek album, and it was very advanced and a lot of bands gravitated to that. This is also during a time where MySpace had like designers, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes, so we true. were, we were, we were actually uh, a design house for bands for MySpace. We were, we were helping bands uh, do coding um, and stuff and, and, and uh, you know, getting paid to do it. Um, we had a shopping cart, you know, kind of thing where you could get your MySpace page for a hundred bucks, you know, and, and uh, we, 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 we started doing like all these different type of like punk rock bands and whatever, you know, we, we would go to shows and just give them cards, some dog media, you know, Hey, if you need these services during that time, Sundog Media started growing a little bit more than just design. So we started doing events. So we had two music festivals um, that were successful. Uh, we had we were doing a lot of showcases at Martini Ranch and at the Clubhouse. And um, this is before anything downtown was built. So um, the thing, the venues downtown was was a modified or yep. or or. Um, like Roosevelt Row was was actually Roosevelt Row, and uh, you would go and play live music in front of someone's house and get like a hundred people to come watch. That's true, um, kind of thing. My first show was at was at Modified Arts. My very first yeah. show was at Modified Arts. Yeah, I, I think I think like one of our first like band shows was either at Modified or something like that. I forget, but it, the, the, that was a different time. You know, like the venue to to make money was Martini Ranch. You know, you can make two thousand dollars off an album release party. You know, they would give you. $500 guarantee plus whatever the ticket sales and, and a portion of the, the liquor sales. If you were a consistent, you know, group doing that, I mean, that's just not around anymore. You, that you could fit a thousand people in that place and not even know it because of the three different rooms and, right. and you'd be making all the money off that door. Yep, exactly. So it was, it's a different time that grew into, we got to sign what Laura says when we signed what Laura says for the talk album, we were gearing up for the release of about four albums all at once. 
during that time I had to start doing the music videos. We didn't, we didn't have the money to pay people. We lost about $5,000 on one huge a life of science music video. It was green screen and animation and all this stuff. Yeah. And we didn't get a product out of that. I had to, I had to make that music video out of the blue, not knowing how to use final cut at that time. We made that video and then we started making all the videos for the, for the label that became like our model that we would provide all these services, not take any more cut than we already were, but just make it cheaper on everybody. Now, nobody's spending any money on design, music videos, photos, booking, or even the album set, the, the album production. Like we were paying for all of it in-house now, um, just like a ma major record label. And we were ready, you know, like we were, we were ready to put everybody out. And, um, you know, this was, this was at the end of, uh, end of a lot of people's like, uh, time in their patience, you know? So, uh, one band fell apart after one tour, released the album, didn't do well. We send the records out to all the, all the stores. They said, yes, you know, let, we'll buy them when the band tours. Band didn't ever go back out on tour. You keep all the records. You know, you wow. lose ten thousand dollars on records. Yep. Then the band, then another band, supposed to go out on tour, and we got thirty thousand dollars invested in all these other things, and they quit halfway through. You know, the next thing. You know, now you're forty thousand dollars negative on what you're supposed to be thinking. I'm going to make all this money in the next year back. And uh, it, it, it got so bad, I, I couldn't make my rent. And uh, I ended up going homeless. And wow. uh, Sammy was very, you know, he, he you know, gave me a place to stay every once in a while when I, when I felt I could, I could do that. But I mean, I, li I lived out of the car for a while. Uh, my family was very good. I had a lot of pride back then, though. So I was like, Oh no, I'm fine. I'm just traveling around a lot. <laughs> but then that forced, that definitely forced uh, the filmmaking even more so because it was the only tools that I had. I only, I had a camera. I didn't have any way of getting a job. So I knew how to edit. Um, and so people wanted commercials. I could make that really fast for their small business. Um, and Brandon Kleinline from Last Exit Live said, hey, I could really use help opening this bar, um, Last Exit Live. Uh, we need someone in charge of marketing. So I, I joined him there. And uh, same thing with Apache Lake Music Festival, joined him there uh, doing the videos. And it just, um, you know, there wasn't any money at first, but that grew into clients. You know, that, that, that grew into more bands, that grew into me and Decker making, you know, music videos for 10 straight years and that really you know being forced into a place where there's nowhere to go with only these these creative tools that's what started filmmaking i mean that was the a hundred percent the decker's killing me music video so uh during that same time uh decker was like adamant about not making not allowing me to to be homeless he was you know he was like, no, you need a place to stay. Come up, he, he literally said, come up, come up to Sedona and stay at my place and we'll make a music video. 
you know, I'll feed you. Like it, it was that kind of scenario. Sammy did the same thing. Sammy was like, Hey, well, you know, come make a music video, crash in my house for as long as you want, you know, kind of thing. The music, my music friends at that time really picked me up. And that, that turned into filmmaking that, that turned into making the stories with my friends songs, you know, like, Every single one of my first year's music videos were based after a movie. And, and some of them the exact same movie, but just done in different bands in different ways. You know, Fayuka's music video for, uh, for uh, Marielena and Decker's Killing Me music video is a continuation of the story. Interesting. Um, Fai- and, 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 so Fayuka's video is, is, the, pre- is the prequel to uh, Killing Me uh, in my head. Uh, we did a Weight and Gold Part 2 video that is not around anymore that is actually the sequel to uh, Killing Me that was an entire story uh, for me. Uh, I don't know that they know that, but that's that's what uh, th- that's how that went. That's amazing. And that was, should... that, that's the first time I've ever thought of a cinematic sequence that would be like a movie was was those three music videos that that were written in my head of like oh this is just like this thing so i'm going to have this start here that's amazing are are those both of those music videos at least available online yeah uh, fayuka's maria lena video and decker's killing me music video should be both online that'd be really cool i need to go watch those after this interview because that's that's amazing and yeah. that's what i love is that i love hearing about what goes behind the scenes when it comes, especially when it comes to filmmaking, but even music as well, because there's all these little details that, you know, that sometimes people don't pick up on. And unless you talk to the person directly and they tell you, this is my intent, or this is what I had in mind and how everything gets integrated and connected together. And it's, it's amazing because then you have a new appreciation for that work. Now, knowing that information, now going back and, and viewing that music video or listening to that song or listening to the entire album again, now that you understand the intent of it. I totally agree. I mean, I, I definitely, I look at some of my friends that are filmmakers and I get their films more because I know their struggle. Or I know the conversations they were having when they're thinking of making this film. Or I know that what happened during that film and the, the, the lead actor left. Yeah. How did that? And I know that that changed the film this way. And so I think I think of that film once I see it when it's done differently than what the first the person has no idea. Is that why you got into doing more documentaries? Because uh, uh, going on beyond uh, Sundog Media and getting into Mag- Manga Skies, were docu- What made you decide to do more uh, documentaries instead of music videos or film? So there was this awesome time when we were making Kill It With Love with the Wiley one. And we were working with Gardner Cole, who's a multi-platinum producer. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's Sammy's brother-in-law. So like, it was like familiar, you know, kind of thing. And there was this awesome time during then that there was a lot of really cool music series coming out. There was this, uh, the Black Keys put out this thing with most Def that was called Black Rock. And they had this like, docu-style like launch it did they didn't launch it like an album was launched it was like the first time i saw this kind of thing where they launched it in these like series of just like the songs were all like the sessions the recording sessions they had so many different people that were featured on these songs 
they like made these like docu style sessions. I fell in love with that. Also during that time, there was a thing. Oh, I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, there was a blog. Um, oh man. Uh, blog uh, I forget what it is. That was a music blog that was like all like live, like, and it's like single camera operated. And um, I fell in love with the style of music liveness of, where it's not in the studio. You're like, you're like, it's a really high quality production of this live street or raw organic performance. That is why I wanted to do documentaries. I love the way that that idea of what if we could like th these people in life that are such pure musicians, they don't need amplification. They just need to be captured correctly. You know, their, 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 their voice just needs to, to be heard. That's really what drove me into documentaries first. I'd, I, I think I looked at some of my music videos as my fictional film. I mean, Captain Squeegee's, even Decker's, Bayuka, uh, A Life of Science, those were all, that was my fictional side. And I wanted to show this like non-fictional side of also high production. That led into play the documentary, which was just another extension of that same black rock style of documentary. Also in the middle of that is the Airstream sessions. So Last Exit Live is opening up. This yep. is now. I remember those. You know, this is, uh, so this is a 2014, you know, or 15 right around there. And the Airstream sessions are opening up and me and Brandon and Brian Stubblefield make this epic series that went on for years of Airstream sessions that we're, I'm still in love with. You go back and watch any of the Airstream sessions. They're awesome. Single camera. Brian is the master of 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 audio so he has hidden microphones and it sounds perfect it's the idea of just letting the musicians be captured right no editing it's all one take that whole thing led into like was like saw black rock started making these like little diy docu things for each band airstream sessions play the documentary um and play the documentary was 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 a full-on like i got so we tried holding a fundraiser at our at my high school to raise money for music education and they had no sound system the high school that i that i went to 10 years ago it sold it all wow no sound system they're like you have to bring everything in we've sold the speakers we sold the microphones i'm like in your auditorium there's not a microphone wow that's amazing and so that it it, it totally like that turned me into an activist going to my old high school just to raise money for music education because I had heard that they were making cuts back then. This is still early. This is like mid-2000s. And sure enough, we couldn't even give them money. Really? The school was like, sorry, you know, you could give it to our parent, you know, association. We gave it to the parent, the, the uh, parent teacher association, PTA, whatever. But that, that, that turned into activism. And then activism, I mean, you, once you start going down that road, yeah, you ain't coming back, you know. Yeah, you care hooked. too much. Yeah, you care too much about everything. I will say uh, to to plug a little bit of play the documentary. It's one of my favorite documentaries, and I've seen quite a bit. And especially because of the fact that it touched home for me so much. Because my my parents they uh, met each other in middle school in band, and so 
music has also been a major part of my life and my uh, aunt and uncle were both music teachers as well. And I mean, I had private music teaching almost all my, like, like the majority of my, all my childhood. And then even to through college, I was having a private music teacher. So music education really hits home for me. And to see a documentary about just musicians in general, as well as music education, both on a local level, and that really hit home because the fact that there were so many people that I knew in the documentary, but then also you traveling the entire world and what, how the world experiences music. I mean, it really, it really touched me. So I just wanted to mention that because, you know, it's documentaries that those that really inspire people. And uh, so I want to thank you for that because that was such an amazing doc. It's still one, I, and I've seen a number of your, your works now, and uh, it's still one of my favorites today. Oh, thank you so much, man. You know, that, that I, I was really, really blessed with the musicians in that one, you know, everybody, everybody, we all, we all donated our time and, and efforts to make that happen. We all, you know, pushed the, the Kickstarter for it. I mean, it was, it was a big community effort, you know, and in the end, I think it cost about 10,000 to make and it was fully covered by fundraising. And, That's and amazing. It, uh, that's Every really single good. profit that's been made from it has gone to music education nonprofits. It still does. Like we donate about two to three hundred dollars a year, just from the streaming sales from Amazon to to different music nonprofits. That's incredible. It's not a lot, but I mean, it's 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 a, it's it's, a, it's it's one thing, you know. It's like every year, if we're if we're able to do that, somebody else's, you know. And as long as we keep creating these systems, that's the way I look at these documentaries. Is like. I can make a fictional film and I'm going to make more, you know, fictional films, but these documentaries can make a right now impact on thousands of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, just, just the simplicity of play the doc documentary getting out there has inspired more people to play music, you know, seeing, seeing Decker with his thumper, seeing uh, uh, Julian Davis with his harmonica, like, like, like these, very specific tones and things that people aren't used to seeing and seeing how easy it looks for them. People are playing instruments. I, I, I've, I've, I've been very lucky to, to hear so many great things from people about that film and what it's done for people. I'm, I'm very, I'm very thankful that we were able to do that. So I, I appreciate you saying that. It, it, it was the, it was once you make your first feature film, it, it sets a tone for the rest of your life. It definitely allows you to think a little bigger. I encourage everybody to make a feature film, even if it sucks, even if it never gets out, just, just the completion factor. And we made play the documentary to complete it. We did not make play the documentary to get into festivals, to be released on Amazon. Like that it was made to complete a feature film. That's amazing. And, and since then, how many documentaries have you, have you made so far? Oh, I don't know. It, that, that, it, we've done, we've got, we've gotten so much into the, the corporate organization side where we're making a lot of issue-based documentaries. So, you know, just last year, we probably put out 15 or 20 with different orgs. Um, this year we were easily on route to 20 or 30. 20, 30 um, documentaries. That's insane. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we did um, with just the Voices of Arizona uh, series right now. I think it's going to be at least ten to twenty documentary videos of, of each of the people, and it's about 
you know, you, the, the, the essential workers, um, what are they going through right now? Doctors, uh, even just really cool people that like that change everything they did, start making masks for their community. Like getting, they're, they're not all features, but I mean, like some are short. We just premiered uh, La Morena, which is uh, uh, my partner, Peter Juarez's uh, new film that she directed. I shot and edited that one and that's out on Vimeo On Demand now. I released another film this year called Just For A Moment that was a really cool, intimate, like, kind of showcase of what it's like for a woman to be going through cancer recovery and and the effects of chemotherapy and how scary that could be. And she really, uh, Kate Benjamin and Mark Allred invited us into their house to film them shaving her head. She wanted to celebrate it. She wanted to, you know, to look at this as a, as a good thing, you know, this is a sign of, of change. This is a sign of, you know, getting better. And she's, she's been recovering from it. It's been really beautiful. And, you know, it's a totally different film that I'm used to making. There was no, like, the issue with the film was, you know, there's, we, we have to all realize that, you know, there's a lot of trauma out there right now. And love really can help. You know, love really can heal. And that's what we hope to get on that film. That, that came out in May. Um, it's on On Demand and, and it's also on uh, on Amazon. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Maddie. I really appreciate your time. Um, where uh, We'll put a lot more information into the description, but where people can find you. Yeah, you know, I'm really just trying to get everybody to go to mangoskiesfilms.com. Also, there's, you know, right now, more than ever, we need to be focusing on the freedom of, of the press, um, a free press, and make sure that, we're protecting our journalists, that we're protecting our, our free speech institutions. It, regardless of what any politician says, we are under attack right now. Freedom of speech and, and, and freedom of press is under attack, regardless of what those attacks are, whether it be misinformation or whether it be a political attack, we all need to do better as Americans to, to protect that. That's one thing that makes us great is our, is our freedom of speech and our, our, our passage of information. So. I would just encourage as many people to really recognize that, that those things are happening. Um, as a filmmaker, every single day I get attacked for, for, the, for the films and for the information I put out that have nothing to do with the people that are attacking me. You know, that, that, that really, really, really aren't affecting the people that are attacking me. And the people that are attacking me are primarily just people not listening and not reading and not looking at the truth and not looking at the facts. So. Well, thank you so much, Maddie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. Rock and roll. Thank you so much for listening to the AD20 show. To learn more about AD20 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy and be productive.